Hey, everybody. It's Merritt. And today I'm joined by Stamian producer Nick Bravo. Hello. Hi. We have an exciting announcement today. Well, exciting for you, uh, which is that you are taking a vacation in December. Yeah, I'm uh, playing hooky. Well, it's well-deserved, I think, because this is going to be the first time in two years? Ish. Ish, that you have taken any time off. So what we're going to be doing this month is we're going to be running a best of Stay Mean. And so we have carefully curated some of our favorite episodes of our shows. And some of these are a little more recent and some of them stretch into the distant past. Like and like the one you're about to listen to right now. Like today's episode, which features a favorite of the network, Gita Jackson. And you may have recently heard Gita on an episode of Woodland Secrets that was a bonus episode. She has been a guest pretty consistently on the show because we love her because she's amazing. Yeah, she uh, she joins the ranks of people who've been on the show three times. She's the third person to have a third appearance on Woodland Secrets after Mia Schwartz and Austin Walker. I love those detailed stats. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, no, this episode was really fun. It was the 22nd episode of the show way back in September 2015. And, um, you know, I'm trying to remember what we even talked about. We talked about uh, we talked about hip hop quite a lot. Um, And this was before Gita was working at Kotaku. So in the most recent bonus episode, she talked about having a job. And this was before she had a job, I think. Uh, So, yeah, this is back when she was doing uh, match three. Yeah. Wow. Wow. The sands of time, huh? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, So, yeah, uh, I think. You're really going to like this episode if you have heard it before. It's been long enough that it'll probably be fresh to you as it is to us. And if you've never heard it, well, then this will be a treat. It'll be an excuse to dig back into our archives. What's cool about this episode is that it's old enough that it's fallen off the uh, old end of the Woodland Secrets feed. And we're switching feed providers, so eventually all of those old episodes will be available again. But right now, they're not available in the feed. They're only available on the website. So... This is a little peek back into that hidden part of the archive. And all of these reruns, the older ones, uh, are before I really knew what I was doing with producing and editing. So you will be hearing slightly remastered versions. Uh, I'm going to go and tweak some settings and, you know, make it sound a little bit closer to our contemporary audio quality. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. It's a re-release. It's a re-release. Blu-ray. Yeah. Laserdisc. All right, well, enjoy the episode, and um, yeah, we'll talk to you again next week. Later. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going pretty well. What's up with you? Uh, just a busy day. Mm-hmm. Around. Yeah. I had therapy, which is a fun thing to do. Like right after you wake up, yes. And then, yeah. Um, now I'm talking to you, and then I'm going to be on my podcast, um, Match Three, this evening. So, and then I'm going to Vancouver. Wow, so a lot of talking. Yeah, it's going to be. I'm going to be real fun on my own podcast. I think. Yeah. What are you talking <laughs> about on that tonight? Um, I'm not. I'm not sure yet. Usually, we finish up the show notes like right before the show starts. Um. So, 
I know the only game other than the games you sent me that I that I've really been playing this week is The Sims because it's like my like comfort zone game. Yeah. Like when I I've been last week I was on the East Coast with my parents, and it was that's always like a mixed bag of feelings. So I came back and I was like, I just want to like make a really attractive couple and then give them a very dramatic love life. Yeah. Uh, so that was what I what I've done. So I'll be talking about that Great. later. Yeah. And then I think probably. Sam Phillips, who's my like college friend that I roped into being on this podcast, uh, this he posted this um, this article that I'll take a look at in a bit called "I Hate Video Games, But I Love the Oculus Rift," which is about the Palmer Lucky Time Magazine thing and uh, just sort of what VR represents as like a potential to this person. So. Maybe we'll end up talking about that because I guess Patrick hasn't really edited the stock yet at all. Yeah. Yeah. And he's the one with like a, a grown up job. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that can get in the way of podcasting. Yeah. It's, um, but hey, I mean, he gets free beer from his office. So. Well, that's all right. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. That's, that's pretty chill. Yeah. So now we've never spoken before, right? No, this is the very first time we've spoken. Right. Now this, I sound like I'm like a psychic on like tv or something like we've never spoken before right <laughs> so like i'm about to like read your mind or something yeah yeah um so i hear that yeah you are on match three which is super cool yeah and when did that start um god so this would be our 12th episode so i guess 12 weeks ago which wow. makes it, like just a couple of months yeah but it's really shot up like i was I, when I started doing this podcast, I was like, oh, cool. I have another thing to like obsessively check on the internet all the time. Of course. And I saw that y'all are like consistently in the, the top rankings lately, which is super cool. Yeah, no, it is. It was, um, I mean, I figured we get like a bump from people like Patrick. He's been, you know, very visible and working for a long time. Um, but it's been incredible that people just seem to like us. I like hearing us talk. Um, and they think that we have interesting and valuable things to say. Uh, it's really flattering in a lot of ways. Um, I, my reaction though, whenever anyone likes anything I do is like, Oh, weird. That's really weird. Right. But, um, you know, it's a fun thing to do to drink beer with my friends and have people enjoy it. So I'm trying to like not be quite so overwhelmed by all the attention. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's tough, right? Like, like you said, having that reaction of when someone and like something you did, like, uh, okay, <laughs> like, yeah. um, I don't really know what to do with this. Like, yeah. people are paying attention to me. Yeah, and uh, I we've talked a little bit about about this on Twitter, but it's just like the thing about visibility and the way people like perceive what that means for you as opposed to what it actually means is that distance between those two things like the perceived meaning and the actual meaning or sometimes it's what something I've been particularly grappling with recently um just like uh someone on Twitter called me a celebrity and that really stuck with me because when they called me that it was like right before I didn't really know if I was going to have a place to live and I had been like crying all day and eating cold pizza in bed and like hadn't gotten out of bed. And I checked Twitter and someone was there being so shocked that a celebrity was speaking to them. And I was like, you don't like, you really 
you've made it's you've made something up about me and you're projecting it onto me and that feels weird yeah but i can't stop that also right yeah what do you even do to that like the way that twitter turns people into icons is just so strange and people definitely see there's some threshold of like numbers that people see and go oh this person is famous yeah and i think it's when you start getting into like the thousands of followers that people start to think that you're like a huge deal yeah and there is like that total disconnect yeah like i've talked about this with other people but this perception that anyone who is at all visible even in like a really tiny sphere like video games are a really small space and then like critical consumption of video games is like an even smaller space yeah and so you can be really visible in that but have like no security or like no recognition beyond that yeah and people don't get that yeah i mean i think i've only been like in this space as a participant rather than a fan for about a year and i think about the way that I perceived people who I'm now friends with. And it's really easy to imagine that someone who's doing stuff that's really, really cool is successful in all the ways that you're not, you know, um, where they, that also expands out to like, oh, they must have, you know, a great apartment and like lots of great friends and they must not have any problems paying their bills. And, Writing in particular has changed so much in the past 10, 15 years, especially writing and like journalism or criticism, especially like the internet in general, <laughs> that it's really made it impossible to, to be able to have a lot of those things. You know, I think about what my parameters for success are and how far away they seem and also like how simple and tiny those things are. Like, I just want to have enough money to like, get married and like start having kids like in 10 years. And I'm not really like, not sure if that's going to be a reality for me. Yeah. I mean, I think those conversations about how we define success are really important to have out in the open because it seems like so much of that goes implied so much of the time. Like people have this vague nebulous idea of what it means to be successful. That's like, you have a lot of Twitter followers and then that somehow brings money and and that somehow brings like security. Like if you get speaking gigs, you must be really famous and be really well off and all these things. And that's often not true. Um, And then also people have widely different ideas of success. Like when I look at people who are trying to succeed making games, like on the dev side of things, a lot of what that means sometimes is like supporting a middle-class white lifestyle of like having a family having a house like in suburbia all these things which aren't like necessarily bad things to want yeah but they are really specific like that's a really specific idea of success and then when I think of success I'm like I don't have to worry about money every month um I can afford to pay rent for my room in my shared house that I live in with a bunch of other people yeah and I like don't have a car and I don't have kids or anything yeah and so it's like very different and mm-hmm. oftentimes like we just like talk about that stuff without actually getting into the details of like, what do we actually think of as success? Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, success is just stability, but like Mm -hmm. my idea of stability comes from the ways in which I felt unstable in my life. So like, you know, it took me like a long time to like feel like have 
any kind of like normal or good relationship with my parents at all. And it's still like a little bit fraught sometimes. So I think of stability as like having like a nice family as whatever, however, I just like define what family means to me. But there's also like a lot of things culturally that's impacting my view of what a family is. And perhaps I'll just need to redefine what that's going to look like just because monetarily like being able to have a very traditionally defined family is like not really possible. And I can't see it being really possible unless I give up a lot of other things about my life that I like, like if I get famous for writing on the internet, then on the one hand, like I'll be, I'll be famous. So I'll have to experience fame. And that's something I super don't want <laughs> at all because it means giving up privacy, which I also associate with stability. And then I like didn't really actually like want to be a writer at all, which is weird to remember. I tried really, I went to this like magnet school program for writing in high school and like realized that while I like writing and I feel like I'm good at it, like as a career, it's really unstable and really difficult and really isolating. Um, so I sort of tried like a lot of other things and then started doing writing because it was sort of at the time just fun and now it's sort of become my career and like, do I even want this in general? I don't know. I'm 25. I'm having like the most intense quarter life crisis. And it's lasted throughout the <laughs> year. And I'm like I'm turning 26 in September. And I hope that I have a, at least a little bit of a better handle. But then, you know, the Saturn return begins at like 27. So maybe I'll just be floundering until 30. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm starting to go through mine. I think it starts like... Maybe I'm like just on the cusp of it. I'm actually turning 28 next or not next month, the month after. Mm -hmm. And I've been dealing with a lot of similar stuff. Um, I've been in games for not that much longer than you, like only like two and a half, three years. Mm -hmm. And I sort of fell into it. And I think that's how a lot of people get into their fields, right? Like it's not something that they set out to do necessarily. It's just like a chance coincidence leads them into it. Yeah. But I'm at a point now where I'm like, is this really what I want to do? And like, if I actually force myself to think about like, how do I define success and how do I define stability and happiness for me? Do I see those things being possible in this space that I'm working in? Yeah. Yeah. And it's weird. It's like hard also because like I talking to Patrick sometimes and other people I know who are salaried, who have things that I feel like are stable, um, they're also always talking about like, well, what do I do next? Like, where do I go from here? And it seems I have, you know, I, I talk about Max on like literally every podcast I do. And I feel like such a loser, but like talk to my friend, Max Neely Cohen, who is like a, he's like a capital R capital W real writer and that he's written a novel and like he lives in New York and has all these cool, like young, hot young publishing and writing friends. Um, and he, he always says that like the problems that exist that we experience in games definitely exist everywhere. And I'm like really aware of that. Um, I also like run a nonprofit gallery, like on the side and have dipped my toe into some wider problems of gender and race in the art world, which are, you know, still pronounced, but they get like a veneer of academia smeared all over them. So it's uh, less hostile, but still nasty. <laughs> um, but yeah, Max says they, these problems exist in other industries, but they just seem particularly bad in games. 
in a way that makes them an interesting case study for the problems of labor and the problems of sustainable like living and um, the problems of sort of being young and entering the workforce, the problems of trying to make a career out of doing anything in the arts. Uh, but it also is like, this is sort of like my life and I'm here by accident. <laughs> and there's no like roadmap for what I'm supposed to do. There's no precedent for this. And it's exciting, but it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, even the people who are doing similar kinds of things like five or 10 years ago and who have like gotten to a point where they may not be where they want to be, but they're in like a somewhat secure position. The context that they were coming up in is so different from what it is now. So it's even hard to like get advice from them about like what to do. Like I think about people like Lee who like I love, um, but it's so hard to like translate those people's experiences into someone who's like starting to do this stuff now because the environment is so different Yeah, in a lot of ways, right. In ways it's better. Um, there are way more women working in games. It seems like now than from what Lee's told me, like when she started out and there are way more kinds of games writing, which is really cool, but also there are a lot of publications that have folded and there seems to be less money in traditional journalism for this stuff. So it's complicated. Well, it's, it's like now because some more parts of it are like more viable and like more like the way the rest of the world does journalism and criticism, it's enfolding all of the other problems of journalism and criticism, which I mean, we're always present, but now it's just sort of like, yeah, suddenly people are realizing that enthusiast press websites are like about as viable in the long run as magazines in general, you know? Like, all these places are slowly realizing, like, I don't know, Max was talking to me about, he told me he wanted to make a bet about whether Polygon and Kotaku would exist in five years. And I was like, probably not. (laughs) You know, like, it's not just that video games has changed so much, it's that everything about the internet is making, it's just everything about the internet is changing the entire way about how we live and how people work. And primarily it seems like I know my experience because I'm in Chicago and like, I'm not on either of the coasts um, where a lot more people in this industry live. It's just like, particularly in this industry, most of my like life revolves around the internet now. And that's just untested ground. And it's kind of a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it absolutely is, right? It's yeah. my thing with this is that it's really easy to treat the way that we're doing things right now as like neutral or like as kind of a naturalized environment where things just happen. Mm-hmm. But it's all these things are the result of like political and economic changes, right? Like yeah. and the fact that all of this stuff takes place on Twitter, which is like a platform that is owned by a company that is like making money off of our use of it is not a neutral thing, right? Like all, and the fact that we're kind of becoming like atomized journalists, celebrity, dev, artists, whatever, who are expected to perform this public identity in order to like get that kind of currency. Like, I think you can be a developer or 
a writer or whatever who isn't really active on Twitter, but I don't really know of many people who make that work and like succeed at that. So much of that work does seem like public presentation stuff. And like none of those things are just like the way things are, right? Yeah. Like someone's benefiting from those. And um, it feels like it's hard to talk about that stuff. It It is. I mean, I feel like people are only just beginning to talk about it publicly. Um, and I know like this morning I woke up, I was just in like a terrible mood yesterday and today. But part of it is uh, over the weekend, I went to the going away party of like three of my IRL friends. Uh, and that just like was great to see them. And then I realized the next day I was like, oh, that's they're all actually moving. That's why we had a party. Um, and I woke up this morning and just like still in like a fucking terrible mood. And I realized like this place that I consider in many ways my workplace, like Twitter, where I am able to interface and interact with my colleagues, is also a place where I have like fans. And the concept of like me like having fans is still mind boggling like doesn't make sense. And occasionally, yeah, I just sort of tweet really aggressive things to make sure that the divide between the distance that's necessary between me and people who just kind of like my writing, like still exists. But it's, it's also like, I know that my performance on Twitter is a part of my job. And it's something I don't get paid for, but it's also really necessary. Totally. And there's this weird blurring that happens where like, yeah, Twitter is part of your job if you're a freelancer, but it's also where you go often to, like, talk to your friends, like you were saying. And so there's this blurring of, like, labor and free time and sort of an erosion of the boundaries. And a lot of people have talked about this. Yeah. Um, this isn't, like, news, but I think it's really visible on Twitter for people who are doing this kind of work. Like, yeah. the line between, okay, now I'm working and now I'm, like, talking to my friends is just more blurry by the day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I deleted my Twitter for two weeks and just had like a very small private account where not a lot of people, like under a hundred people follow me. And that was really revealing to me about the difference between how I use Twitter at the scale that I do now and how I used to when I was just sort of fucking around and like talking to my friends. Um, cause it was fun again. It was like fun to just sort of throw thoughts like I used to call tweeting just like the, the thoughts I like fart out like when I'm <laughs> <laughs> then I just like can't get out of my head and just have to release and I I that was great that was a great thing to do but now having a large following that is quantified with a number <laughs> is something I need to do as a freelancer to demonstrate that I'm worth taking a chance on in terms of my writing. And uh, that just, like, leads to... It just sucks to, like, have to think about it, your brand, all the time. Yeah. Like, you're a product. And you are. Yeah, it, definitely. Yeah. Like... <laughs> I was it, just going to say capitalism's the devil, because it is. <laughs> That's sort of where this all leads back to, is, like, yeah. it's a form of... of just capitalism. I was going to call, use the qualifier late capitalism, but mm -hmm. the commodification of the body is the problem of all capitalism at all times. Yeah. One thing that I've done lately, and I've also done the private account thing. I, I still have a private account and it is super great to like 
it feels like just like an ongoing email thread or like an MSN messenger yeah. conversation with like a bunch of your friends, which is like super cool. And also way more useful for like bouncing thoughts off people and like having what feels like a creative community or like yeah. group of people that you're invested in. Um, another thing that I've done is um, I have a separate name now that I go by offline and that sounds great yeah yeah um I did that for a few reasons um and it's not like anyone ever recognizes me in public although other people have said that someone has asked them if they were me in public before which was very very strange but yeah like one of the big reasons that I did this was it felt like a way to build some compartmentalization into my life of like, okay, I have the person that I am online, like funny joke person on Twitter, which is increasingly what I've become, I think, because I've sort of dialed back on the game's crit and like theory and production. Um, So I have like funny person online and then I have like other person who can just be like chill and laid back and like not thinking about this stuff all of the time. Yeah. And to some extent, that's like an artificial divide, right? Like I'm always both of those people, but it does help to sort of have like this other identity. Like it's like the Clark Kent mode, I guess. Yeah. 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 That's sort of what I'm using the art gallery thing to do. Like I don't, unless we're doing fundraising stuff, I don't like tweet about art shit on my, my writing, my public Twitter, because you know, the shows that we organize and the events we organize, they're my way to interface with the artistic world that isn't necessarily public-facing. Like, I do curating and organizing there. And it's something where I'm, I'm pretty much, like, I'm the face of the gallery in some ways, but it's with someone else. And during these events, it's like we're doing mostly behind-the-scenes behind the stuff and maybe a little schmoozing. And, you know, it's also just mostly, like, 20-somethings in the west side of Chicago that we all kind of know. And it's a community thing in a way that the internet doesn't always feel like a community thing. And it's like to be able on the weekends when I usually end up doing most of that kind of work, which is, I like losing a lot of money on this gallery, like a, a lot, a lot of money. But it's like so necessary to have that other space where I can talk about other things I'm also interested in and be a be a person that I, yeah, like I am, you know, Gita, the curator all the time, but I need to specifically be it sometimes and not be Gita, the writer. Right. Yeah. Like there's this impulse, I think that I've definitely felt before to sort of weave every fiber of your life into this coherent quilt or some kind of metaphor. Um, but this like, to make it into a coherent thing that's part of your brand, right? Like yeah. all of these different things like, oh, I do, I don't just do games writing. I do like art gallery creation. I do all these things. And to have like a website that has like everything about you, like who you are to like sell this total package of yourself. And that impulse is super real and powerful. And also I've been really trying to resist it lately. I think that's like intentionally compartmentalizing yourself is a healthy thing to do because you know there are different facets to you and they all kind of come to the surface at different times and recognizing you know when you're turning from 
like a public facing self to a more private self or a self that's primarily focused on one interest as opposed to another, that's, that's good to see, to see how, like how broad you are as a person and how many different parts of you that there are. There's someone outside the window that is carrying, they're on two bikes and they're carrying a third bike in like a baby carrier. <laughs> like, I just, I had to mention that because it was kind of amazing and I mm. wanted to make sure you knew about it. I'm glad I had that mental image. It was, I'm really proud of them for their bike carrying strategy. I just wonder where their baby is. <laughs> it's like, oh no, the baby. Oh, I got the two bikes in the, oh, the baby. I left the baby at the bike store. I got all the bikes. <laughs> all right. Um, the only other thing that's on my mind is crystals right now. So crystals. Yeah. I've been really into crystals in the really? past. Uh, so you talked to David Walensky and you, you got interviewed for that thing that he's doing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's, we started this weird inside joke about, we're going to start a podcast on the healing power of crystals. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'm just like, I followed a bunch of people that just post pictures of crystals on Twitter. Uh, and I'm just thinking, like, I'm trying to understand, like, why I'm so into crystal. Like, I really don't. I love anything that has sort of, like, a weird, like, hokey metaphysical bent to it. Like, I'm also really into astrology, despite really not believing in astrology at all. But I, my natal star chart is bookmarked on my my browser. Nice. Yeah. And Virgo assigned at Libra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, way less into that stuff than, like, 99% of the people around me on a daily basis are. Because yeah. I live in, like in toronto and like the queer people in toronto that i know mostly i'm not really involved in like a lot of community stuff but most of them that i know are like mad into all that stuff and like i'm i totally get that and i'm just like not as into it but um i don't know i think it's like a fun thing to do for like self-reflection totally yeah i'm like i actually i do tarot um and I actually find people who are, like, really loudly anti-astrology way more irritating than people who are, like, very loudly pro-astrology. Like, right. And for me, it's, like, that whole... It's interesting to me, like, I feel like I've felt this need before, and I know other people who have, too. Like, when you bring that stuff up in conversation, there's always this need to, like, present yourself as, like not crazy or like a rational member of society by being like oh now that i believe in it it's just like a cool mode for storytelling or whatever and to me it's like well i don't it doesn't really matter to me like like the question of belief isn't like the important thing to me it's more like utility and if you're getting something out of it then i think that's like incredible and that's my relationship with tarot basically yeah i mean uh, i have this one friend uh who's really into like mindfulness exercises and you can I asked him because, like, I asked him about this because he's, like, literally the most positive person I've ever met in my life. Like, nothing makes him upset, ever. And, like, I need, whenever I hang out with him, I feel, like, so much better as a human being. And I sort of wanted to know where he got this point of view where he's kind of just always happy. Um, And he said, like, well, it felt, like, silly to me at first to do, like, mind, like, like, make mindfulness a part of my life. But then I like really noticed like when I meditated and stuff, I felt better. And I just feel like, like when I like think about star charts, when I do star charts for people I have crushes on, which is something I do that I know is creepy, but 
if I have a crush on you and I know your birthday, I will look at our star chart. <laughs> um, and when I do that stuff, it like allows me to like separate myself a little bit from my feelings and make them less intense and think about them in a way that isn't overwhelming. And when I look at like my own star charts or horoscopes, like it's the same thing where I can think about my needs and like what I want in a way that doesn't make me feel really anxious. So like, why not just do the thing that makes you feel good if it's not hurting anybody else? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like for me, tarot stuff, I guess, is like a way of making sense of and making time for reflection on my life in a way that is absolutely not for public consumption. Yeah. Because so much of the other ways that I do that are like tweeting or like even like Tumblr or whatever, or even just Facebook with people I I actually know, like it's still in conversation with people and to have something that is like super private is really important to me. Yeah. No. Um, In the winter, I pretty much retreat like right in the beginning. I mean, one, because it's so cold in Chicago in the winter, but two, also just like, I feel like, you know, once a season, I just need to do that thing where I completely withdraw and don't really talk to people much and like spend some time, like not in public, not being a product and not having a brand and just sort of like understanding myself and it's good. It's good for you. I don't know. I feel like it's the only thing sometimes that keeps me from not being totally like subsumed by this sea of like my weird life, my weird job and like sort of unstable situation monetarily (laughs) is just knowing, knowing who I am and knowing what I want and what my goals are and knowing that in a concrete way that isn't played out for other people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. All right. That was a good talk about crystals. It was, yeah. (laughs) I used to be way more into them, actually. I used to have, like, a ton of crystals, and then I guess, I don't know, I just sort of, like, fell off it or something. I actually do have a crystal tattooed on my wrist, though. Yeah. I know. I've seen your Tumblr about women trapped in crystals. Oh, yeah. That was... Yeah, like that, that was the heyday of crystals for me. Yeah. They're just gorgeous, is the thing, is that they're super beautiful. Yeah, totally. Yeah, whatever their healing properties are, I think maybe it's just, like, they're pretty, they're, like, really lovely mm-hmm. in a way that we are obviously conditioned to find, like, gems beautiful, but it's also neat to sort of just see, like, a a rock that is un, like assuming from the outside. And then when it's cracked open, it's just full of jewels. And that's, I don't know. There's probably a metaphor related metaphor. to that. It's going to end up in something I write. And I know, and you'll know, you'll know when you read it. I'm anxiously awaiting a confessional think piece about geodes. <laughs> Absolutely. Coming to Slate and or the Atlantic. Sick. Possibly the hairpin or the all. You know, the place mm-hmm. for women write. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Broadly now or whatever. <laughs> oh, God. Broadly, I remembered that that existed. And then every time I, like, have that brief memory, I'm like, oh, yeah, Broadly's a thing. Maybe I should. I don't even get to the point where I consider checking it out. I just sort of move on. Yeah. Like, what's up with the vice in general? 
I have no idea. Honestly, like that world is so alien to me. Like I'm transitioning into more of a writing space lately in that, like I'm stepping away from doing traditional dev stuff. Not that I was doing stuff that was super traditional anyway and doing more just like long form writing. But I have so much awe and respect for people who write pieces on like current events or like think pieces or whatever like respect yeah. awe and also just like bogglement I guess yeah. like how do you do this this seems awful to me like sometimes yeah. people are able to make good writing out of it but it's just like I absolutely do not want to be doing that yeah no I'm with you I um so Samantha Allen got me a gig at the Daily Beast once and she asked me how fast I could, you know, turn around an article. And I was like, oh, like, give me a week. And she was like, oh, it's kind of too bad because I want 48 hours maximum. I'm like, that's absurd. Like, writing something succinct, like, writing something that's good and also says something and is also a commentary on something that's current in 48 hours seems so exhausting. And she had been doing that so frequently at the time. Um, pretty much writing something for them every day. And it just seems overwhelming, you know? I'm, like, I'm at a spot right now where I really just want to... I've spent, like, a couple of months writing a couple of things because I they're pretty dense and complicated, and I need a lot of space from them. And that seems to be, like, the ideal way for me to work on anything is to, like, start something, sit on it for a few days, go back to it, possibly restructure the entire thing, go back to it, repeat until I feel like it's good enough. Uh, and yeah, the kinds of people that work for any of these, any of these places that get accused of writing just clickbait, um, they work so much all the time and write so frequently and often really well in ways that I just don't understand. Yeah, no, me too. And like, I think the lesson that I've picked up from the past few years in games is like, as I'm moving in and thinking about focusing on writing as a creative outlet, I think what I've decided is that if that's the market for writing, like if that's the context that professional writing happens in, then I absolutely don't want writing to be the way that I pay my rent. (laughs) Like I want it to be something that I enjoy doing. Um, there's not much money in the kinds of writing I'm doing anyway. So it makes sense to have something else going on because I can't be one of those people that is pumping out like articles every couple of days. I can't be like, I don't know if you've ever heard stories about Lee, like going to conferences and writing, having articles for Gama Sutra up like before the panel is over. Oh my God. She's like writing as it's going on and writing just incredibly quickly um, and it's just like, I, oh, that's incredible. And I can never do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, what's weird is that, I mean, writing sort of, it was the way that we like to do it for a really, really long time. And now it's just kind of disappearing. Um, even people doing things like, you know, the empathy exams, Leslie Jameson, she existed in a world where the turnover is as fast as it is for a while. And then she got to, it's sort of like being able to spend time on things and still 
gift you get after graduating from working yourself into the ground for years. It's a weird world. Yes. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super weird. really fast. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's the problem of like all kinds of entry level labor right now is that in order to do things the way that you used to be able to, you kind of have to like, if I wanted to write a book right now, I'd probably just need to have a whole bunch of money for me to live on. So I could write an entire manuscript and sell it. Yeah. And I know I like, I want to write a book. That's like the end goal for me is to write a, a weird book about media and identity. Uh, but in order to get the capital I'd need to work on that book, I need to be writing all the time in a way that makes me feel super burnt out. So if I just had a whole bunch of money, if I was like a rich person, I could probably would have written a manuscript by now, but it's not the reality. So it's, again, that's just true of pretty much every industry is like, if you want to get in entry level, you either have to be super poor and working all the time or already be rich. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It sucks. Capitalism. All the time now. It's, yeah. God. It's also weird, like, operating in this weird tech freelance writing space that I feel like a lot of people that I know do, it's easy to lose sight of, like, the rest of the world. Um, I have friends who, like, aren't in this kind of game, right, who have, like, social work jobs or have, like, other kinds of work and every once in a while and it's like it sucks and it's like really bad that I feel this way but I'm just like oh yeah that that's the thing like not everyone is in this like horrifying like they're in their own horrifying worlds but like this isn't everything and I know people who have left this stuff like I know a friend of mine who was like a pretty big name in tabletop games just decided to quit one day and was like I don't want to do this anymore I don't feel like my work is having the kind of impact that I want it to. And I'm leaving games and I'm going to go like get a face-to-face -face service job. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's funny whenever I talk to people outside of games, like my, my IRL, IRL friends, um, Sometimes you can just like watch the, I like feel like I can feel and like watch a veil be lifted about all the things I'm worried about on the internet just sort of revealed. It's like, oh, that's none of that's really that much of a big deal, actually. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm, I'm so stressed out about the stuff that actually doesn't have any effect on my life or my self-perception or who I am or what I do. But when you're like deep in like the tech slash game space these tiny little battles become like everything and it becomes overwhelming I keep using that word overwhelming I think it's because I'm like in a spot right now where I'm like on the precipice of making a lot of decisions about where I'm going to go and one of those choices is always just like just stop just like stop doing this yeah 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 I've thought about that too there have definitely been times where I'm like, what if I just stop doing this? What if I just delete my Twitter account? What if I just like got a job at the mall? Like that would be pretty good in a lot of ways. But then whenever I, I, it's never been like a realistic thing for me. Like, and 
it almost feels like a dependency sometimes. Like, I don't, like, oh, I can't pull away from this. I'm, like, in too deep. Yeah. Um, Maddie Myers, for a while, when she was, like, before she finally did get a job somewhere at a place where they really want her and are really passionate about her, which is makes me really happy. Um, for a while, she would talk to me a little bit about feeling like she should quit, but then also feeling like she was too stubborn to do so. And like feeling that like that belief was making her like a weak or it was preventing her from making like a, a, the best choice for her life. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it's like bad to want to succeed in the place where you've invested a lot of time, you know, like, I think that's reasonable mm-hmm. for anyone to be like, well, I've worked here for X amount of years and I should be able to find some semblance of security and success. Like, why shouldn't I? Yeah. Sorry, this ended up being like a huge bummer of a conversation. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> um this is super real stuff. Yeah, it's uh, just been on my mind for the past month or so. And that with, you know, every summer I go home and see my parents and it always ends up being this thing where they want to know how I'm doing. And like this year more than any other, I was sort of like, I really don't know how I'm doing. Yeah. Like, I just don't know. And it's there's no parameters for me to figure out like how I'm where I'm going to be in the next five years or what my life's going to look like. Yeah. I mean, precarity is a bitch, right? Like, (laughs) and insecurity is awful too. Like this is, it helps me to remember that all of these things are bigger than me. And sometimes that's really scary to think about, but it's also like, okay, yeah, this isn't just like a personal failing. It's not just that I'm not good enough or like I didn't work hard enough. It's like, no, this is how the world is right now. This is like, these are the conditions. This is like what we've got to deal with. And it sucks a lot of the time, but it's not like individually my shortcomings that are like, at work right because yeah. that's always the easiest place to go to like even if you do have an understanding of like how historical and like systemic forces work like it's still really easy especially if you are someone who like has been told by society that like you like need to work harder than everyone else or like you're not worth as much as everyone else to feel like oh it's my fault like I didn't do good enough yeah yeah no it, it does actually like make me feel better about what I'm doing when I remember that it's like, oh, it's just the world that's really messed up and weird right now. Instead of I personally failed, I didn't work hard enough. And and you're totally right about like marginalized people who are told they they have to work harder. Often my parents directly told me that I was going to have to work harder in order to be respected. So I internalized that. So it is good to remember to just take like take the blinders off and like actually look at things and be like, oh, this is a result of things that are completely out of my control. And I just have to, I feel like the most I can do in this instance is just is to do what we're doing right now, which is to talk about it openly and be realistic about, about this and also be honest about the like not fun parts of my job and the like the not fun parts 
of the way that we're living right now. And be honest about like how scary it is sometimes. Yeah. I think a lot of times when I tell people like I'm a writer, they just want to hear about the fun parts. And I'm happy to talk about the fun parts because it is also fun to remember that, oh yeah, no, it is kind of like a blast sometimes to do what I do. And sometimes I do just like feel really fulfilled. Um, but I noticed, you know, I think most people shut down when they hear about things that aren't pleasant, but people, some people are just like super not interested in the fact that this is like an actual job and like any job, it's going to have drawbacks and things that are really irritating and things that are a hassle, like even like stuff that like isn't that bad, but is an aspect of my job that I don't like doing. Like, I don't like writing invoices because they're incredibly tedious and boring. And I always only ever take like 10 or 15 minutes to do, but I'm just sort of like, I always end up just writing, like invoicing like 10 things at a time because I put it off for like a month and I've written so much and I just didn't want to go and find the template I use and write all those things down and like catalog how much money I'm supposed to be having. I mean, that's just like the reality of working is that some parts of it are going to suck a little bit and we should talk about that. Yeah. And I think it's really cool. I've just noticed that when we've been talking about this, we've both been saying, like, we haven't just been saying that's how things are, but we've both been saying that's how things are right now, which is like a really cool thing to say I feel like like there's this fatalism sometimes and I totally get where it comes from but I notice it especially among like left-leaning people on the internet where it's just like the sense of like everything is fucked yeah who cares like this is it this is what we have everything is bad forever at the end yeah. Or everything is bad forever for like the next 30 years and then the end. Um, and that feels so unproductive to me. And yeah, like, I'm totally with you. That, and I don't mean that like it's unproductive to like, to be upset about things, but like, it's not even upset. It's like the sense of futility. And often it's a sense of futility among people who have the means to do something, even if they don't think they do, or who aren't actually the most affected by this stuff. Yeah. Like, so just phrasing it that way is like, is helpful for me. Like when I think about why things are so unstable, it's because everything's changing. And hopefully what I can do is push things in a direction where they'll change to be better. The instability and the problems that exist in particular right now are because everything's new and not everything's settled yet. So the more that we point out, like the things that could still be pushed farther into a more open, safer direction, then yeah, I hate the phrasing of everything. Everything's it's, you know sucks forever. Like everything, that's just the way things are because it's sort of like, if that's just the way things are, then there's really nothing for me to do and like what's the point of doing anything it doesn't lead to anything meaningful happening that could 
that could better everything for everyone. It just also just feels like it is defeatist and it is, it's just depressing and it's self-satisfied in some ways that it's enough to just point out the problems rather than say, oh, hey, what's the next step? Like, if you can recognize there's a problem, then we can all get together and talk about a solution to that. Like, that's the actual work. Totally. Yeah. Like, figuring out that a bone is broken isn't just what a doctor does. Like, they also, you know, put it in a cast and help it heal. Mm-hmm. And it's not enough to be like, look at someone's, like, twisted arm and be like, oh, yeah, that's the problem. It's your bone's broken. Your bone's all fucked up. Yeah, did you see that? Your arm's <laughs> real messed up, dude. <laughs> yeah like you just uh nothing stops with things being shitty like at every point like something shitty happens like literally every day like I god even on my best days I'll like fuck up my eye makeup or something like really bad (laughs) I've actually never been able to get equal wings yeah and you like your your wings are pretty on point and like no matter what my my left eye is always a wildly different shape than hmm. my right eye. So do you do the tape thing? Because I have No, no. See, my trick is I put on so much eyeliner that it's like any differences in size are so small relative to how big they are that no one can tell. That's actually a really, really good tip. Yeah, it's, I it's the Amy Winehouse school of eyeliner. Did you see Amy? It's playing at the no, weird theater. I really should because, I mean... I was never really super into her music at the time, but I feel like I should probably go back to it now. I think I would probably like it a lot more than when it was playing every day when I yeah. worked at retail. But um, That definitely would reduce your enjoyment of the music. Yeah, that, that does that for anything, though. Yeah. Um, and also, she's... Yeah, I've sort of been, like, modeling a lot of my, my looks on her lately. I should yeah. probably see it. My parents saw it, and they said they really liked it. Mm-hmm. And they also bought me... Um, the back to black vinyl for my birthday one year, which oh, was, wow. it was really, that was a great gift. They really pulled it out, pulled it out for that year. Um, yeah, I was really into Amy Winehouse just cause I liked her voice in high school. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to listen to it as, as an adult. And I was like, oh, this music's actually super complex and really interesting. And there's like a lot of different competing feelings going on here. Yeah. And to me, she's like the textbook example of the ways that, like identical behavior in men and women, like especially in celebrities, is treated completely differently. Yeah. Like if you compare her to like I think there was actually an article about this recently, um, that compared her to Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. And was this like one is like tortured genius, the other is like unstable Yeah. Like wreck. Yeah. It's funny that they always use the word hysterical when they refer to female celebrities. Yeah. Like because it just reveals the history of how you feel like that. My mom, um, she's an English professor, and she, for a little bit, taught this book that was written by the illegitimate daughter of Kerouac, um, where she just did the same exact thing he did in On the Road, which is go on a huge road trip and do a lot of drugs and drink a lot and sleep with a lot of people. And then she showed me some of the reviews of this book, where people would just be like scandalized and shocked by her behavior when literally she was just trying to understand her father by doing the things he did. And it's, you know, 
there's so many examples of this and it's, it's weird. Cause like in some ways I like really identify with those sort of sloppy and messy and fucked up male artists because like, yeah, you know, I enjoy drinking alcohol and kind of being a mess. And in college, I like partied really hard all the time because it seemed like the thing to do. And I did, I think we're socialized to experience and like understand artistic genius as being like a cousin to mental, like not being together mentally. Um, But I'm also really acutely aware that like the image of me super drunk and like being aggressive is way different than the image of a man being super drunk and really aggressive. And, you know, it's not good for either of us, but one's romanticized and one isn't. Yeah. Or one's interesting. One's sad. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even like in a less extreme form, like I've toyed with the idea sometimes of dealing with interviews very differently from how I historically have. So like when I have been interviewed, I usually try to be very articulate and intellectual and like presenting complex ideas. And there's the style of interviewee behavior. That's like being not like defensive or, or aggressive, but just being kind of like weird and like giving false answers and just like turning the interview into like a scene. And I thought about doing that. And then I realized like, Oh, right. Yeah. If I did that, I would be a crazy bitch. Like I can't really do that in the same way that, that some guys that I know can. Yeah. Yeah. I was, um, for some reason this morning when I was in the shower, I ended up thinking about Saddle Creek records, um, the record label that bright eyes was on. Um, and Brylo Kelly for a little bit. And there's this weird um, sequence at the end of one of the songs on Fevers and Mirrors, I think is the name of that album. I used to be so into Bright Eyes, and it's, I'm now really surprised I can't remember the name of that album. Um, there's a picture of Connor Oberst in the wall of my childhood bedroom. Uh, anyway, at the end of this song, it just sort of goes on and on. It's this fake fake interview that he's recorded where his friend is playing the character of him and doing that thing where he gives evasive non-answers. And I always really liked it and thought it was like really funny and would be a fun thing to do. But like women in public have to be really open and like confessional and have to, it's always assumed that whatever work they do is confessional And so if you present anything that's counter to that, it's like people just don't understand it um, and are hostile to the idea of not always having access to everything a woman's actually thinking and feeling at all times. Yeah, that's so true. Like I've, I've been putting off releasing this twine that I started working on months and months ago and it's like almost done, but I'm just hesitant to release it because basically it's just like a fuck game. Like it's just a choose your own adventure where you end up like hooking up with like one of a few different people. And it's not really like this, like written in the second person. Um, It's third. So you're sort of like advising this character on what to do. 
but I know that people will play it and read that character as me. And it's funny God. because, like, I am absolutely not the kind of person who would do anything like this character that I'm writing. But I know that there will be people who will be like, oh, this is about Mara. And it's like, no, not everything I do uh, is memoir. Right, right. Like, you're allowed to write fiction sometimes, yeah. you know? You're allowed to explore ideas that maybe you personally experience, but don't necessarily, you aren't confessing something all of the time. You know, yeah. it's fine. Uh, I'm I. So Maddie Myers made a Twine game, and I played it, and it made me really want to make a game, at least once, to see what it's like. Um, and her game, in a way, like I know the parts of it that are confessional because I talk to her a lot, and so I'll know what parts of it are drawing on her own personal experience and what aren't. Um, but then I started writing this thing, remembering that I wrote this like this thing in college about vampires and like just wanted to revisit those characters because I sort of enjoyed writing them and I realized halfway through writing an outline of this game that like people are really literally gonna think I want to seduce and then murder men <laughs> like, mm -hmm. and it's it's weird to know that you can't approach a topic without having to explain in detail the ways that it doesn't actually reflect who you are when I just see I don't know. It's sort of like Nick Cave writes all these songs about murdering women and nobody's fearing for PJ Harvey or Kylie Minogue. Like <laughs> he's managed to not murder his girlfriends. Uh, God, it's just, it's really, but at the same time, it makes me want to go on the defensive and just be like, you know, fuck it. I'll write this weird game where this character seduces and then murders a whole bunch of men. Like, I'll just do that and let people sort out their own feelings about it yeah. and not answer questions about it. But then that's just, but there's like, there's only a certain amount of times you can be called something like a crazy bitch before you sort of internalize it and be like, you know what? Like, it's not that bad. Like, maybe it isn't a negative that you think this way. And I sort of like have created this internet persona of me that I, like a sort of like a mean girl, like a, a like a hot mean girl persona. Um, like my Twitter handle is XOXO Gossip Gita. Uh, and I do that because I know in some ways people will perceive certain facets of my personality as being like Regina George-esque. And I lean into it because you know what? Like that character in that movie is really interesting. And I actually admire some of the things about her so like why not just be that but it's like on the mythical third hand there's on the gripping hand i don't want other... <laughs> yeah. um i don't want what people's ex expectation of me to like dictate who i am so i'm also like just a nice girl <laughs> right that doesn't and like doesn't viciously gossip about people yeah, I guess what it comes down to so, is that patriarchy doesn't let women be people. <laughs> like, you have yeah. to be a trope. You can't like, be a that's person. The... That's it, right? Yeah. And, like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that sucks. <laughs> and it's bigger yeah, it than, than us, but it sucks. Um, it's funny, yeah, yeah, I have the same kind of persona on Twitter. It's a little different, I guess, but I think I've maybe 
fluctuated on it. I think I used to be a lot more aggressive. And now because I just don't engage with a lot of stuff, I just don't care anymore. Like I used to be really up in arguments about games crit and like about uh, game design and everything. And now I'm just like, I actually have no stake in this. Like I don't care. So I guess my persona now is like laid back girl who will cut you like <laughs> like I don't bring that up very often but I it because it doesn't kind of play very often anymore like I'm not putting myself in the line of things where I give people opportunities to like come at me but if someone does like I don't hesitate to just like publicly flagellate them and it's funny like I feel like I need to think about my relationship to this stuff more but that place is something that I've sort of come to over the last like year or so. And a lot of it has coincided with getting back into listening to a lot of hip hop for me, which is interesting because like, like that music absolutely like doesn't belong to me. And then also though, there's like this weird relationship between like listening to that stuff and then like being a white trans woman who has like a really complicated relationship to like aggression and to like public displays of anger or like rudeness or whatever right like there's something in that for me that's like oh like this this like is really helping me think about this stuff in like a way that I would not have expected yeah, no, I, I also, I didn't used to listen to, like, hip-hop at all until I went to college because I had, like, a weird, I grew up, I was, we were the only family of color on my street where we grew up, so I didn't, like, really know any other people of color outside of my family, and I had a weird view of black culture that was rooted in, like, internalized racism, and then, you know, once I went to college and grew out of that stuff, I my writing playlist right now is just exclusively trap music. Sick. And yeah, I just added um, Hannah Montana by Migos to my writing playlist. It's really great. <laughs> um, I'll share it with you. I really like it. Please um, do, yeah. Yeah, it's... When I... And I, I guess I'm just putting this together now. Like, I was like a huge doormat in like high school and in early college. And I was so afraid of being aggressive because I was afraid of the associations with race and aggression and embracing that, like that song, uh, you mad by Vic Mensa with Kanye. Mm -hmm. Um, that for me, like right now is something I really identify with. There's a line in particular that I'm really glad Kanye and me have the same worries about our, our inbox. It goes, um, I got 700 emails in my inbox. What that mean? I ain't calling nobody back. <laughs> and like, you just like, like not speaking to me on like a metaphorical level, but speaking to me in like a real literal, like, yeah. oh, that's exactly what I do when I see that many emails in my inbox. Um, but like, yeah, embracing that aggression is like allowing myself to feel all parts of me and allowing myself to feel it genuinely. And allowing myself to get mad about stuff is good and, like, to stand up about myself. It just means that I like myself more now. And, like, fuck yeah. Liking myself is good for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, like, so much of this stuff is, like, 
like my experience is I mean in a way very different but like in a way similar because I think when you grow up as like someone who is like really involved in and invested in feminist theory and criticism but you're moving through the world in this position of like male power or whatever the way that a lot of people deal with that is just by like shrinking and like refusing like trying to refuse that which like isn't really possible right but like just being becoming really afraid of aggression which can become real being really afraid of like assertion Mm -hmm. and so like coming to terms with that over the past like little while it has been like super cool like it's a similar kind of thing where like like i can walk down the street playing like 36 inch chain or something and just be like i feel like super super good about myself and like none of the old italian dudes in this neighborhood are gonna fuck with me exactly exactly you know i like now i wear like a jean vest with buttons all over it all the time everywhere it smells disgusting um but it has pockets on it which a lot of ladies clothes don't have pockets so that's great and I have like my Doc Martens and I put on my enormous headphones and I I'm listening to Kanye super fucking loud and I just feel so confident I like feel like untouchable so Avi uh, wrote that article for Offworld called it I love my untouchable virtual body yeah and just like the way that she describes the character she plays in Blast Blue I think the one with just the wall of knives um surrounding her entire body like, I read that and it was like, that's like literally what I want to be in life is just for people to look at me and to see a wall of knives because like that's power and that's something I don't always have. And I want to embrace that. Like, yeah, my anger, my aggression, the, the face I make when I don't want people to talk to me, that's a way for me to like project that I have a right to exist. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm allowed to have that, you know, I'm allowed to have that. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of really want to like hang out in person now and just like (laughs) scowl at people. I should show you the flask I just bought. It's bejeweled. And then it says whatever on it. It's really great. (laughs) That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be I want to just have, like, a hashtag squad of, like, girls that just scowl. We'll sit on a stoop with me and just scowl. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Yeah, it sounds let's good. Let's do it, yeah. Bad goals. I'll hit you up. Yeah, yeah, do <laughs> Sick. Um, well, I feel like I. that's probably as good a place to wrap as any. We've been going for, like, for an hour, so that's probably about all the time we got. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much. This was really great. Thank you so much for being on. Yeah, no, I had a lot of fun. Um, actually, yeah, no, I was having a weird morning, and now I feel really good. So I'm really glad that rules. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, um, let's see. If I ever start that podcast about the healing power of crystals with David Wolinsky, I'll let everyone. I'll let everyone know I dropped yes. the announcement on this podcast. Um, I'm going to be on match three today. And then there's something secret in the works that maybe next month, like in September, 
it's interesting and it's about some of the stuff we were talking about today. So I, I'm, I might as well mention that I'm working on like a longer piece about uh, online activism and the places where we learned how to do the internet and how those things are affecting each other. Um, and then also I'm, I'm in that anthology Secret Loves of Geek Girls and I actually finally wrote my first draft of my essay for that. So that will be out later this year. It was successfully funded. So that book will actually exist. Yeah, so. that's great. Yeah, um, so has in that too, right? Yeah, so has in it. Um, and like Margaret Atwood? Margaret Atwood is in it. <laughs> and it's, that that's is wild. Incredible. I know, like, I can't, just the fact that her name will appear in the book with my name also in it. It's been a little bit stressful, but there's like <laughs> a lot of really, really, really good contributors. So Ha showed me a little bit of her essay and it's just really dope. It's really funny. I mean, it's really so Ha. So that's going to be great. It's going to be a great project. Um, but yeah, I think that's everything on the horizon. I'm going to Vancouver tomorrow to take a real vacation. So that's nice. like the only thing I'm thinking about. Um, my first time in Canada and also uh-huh. in Vancouver. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's the real thing that I'm looking forward to that I want to plug is, like, me getting some me time. <laughs> Good. Yeah, you deserve it. And have fun in Canada. Um, I've actually never been to Vancouver. Weirdly, I yeah. lived in Seattle for four years, but I never went. Um, but, yeah, we'll be in the same country. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> On the other side of it. Yeah, you're actually closer to me now yeah. than I really yeah. <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'll, cool. I'll try to soak up so the same Canadian sun as you. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. hopefully I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Woodland Secrets is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Woodland Secrets is a part of Stay Mean, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Mean at woodlandsecrets.co support. For as little as three bucks a month, you'll get access to a monthly newsletter and frequent bonus episodes of our shows. If you'd like to have a message read on the show, head to woodlandsecrets.co messages. You can help people find out about the show, please mention us on Twitter. We're at Woodland Podcast and at Stay Mean Co. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.